CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, September 1st starts now. On today's show, it's Oh What a Week, so Ben's talking the top stories of the week with none other than veteran media and political consultant, Del Marie Cobb. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what's happening this weekend. It's all there, chicagoreader.com. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this the Chairman Speaks Friday. And here's why. Actually, it's a what a week. Delmarie Cobb is standing by. We have plenty of things to talk about, but I'm going to open up... With the chairman speaks, chairman being Jerry Reinsdorf, owner of the Chicago White Sox, owner of my beloved Bulls. Uh, but in this capacity, he was talking about the White Sox. So much to talk about the White Sox. One, there's the performance on the field, which has been absolutely abysmal. So White Sox fans want to talk about the future of the team. I think listeners of the Ben Jarofsky show don't care about that as much as they care about like the economic development impacts of the White Sox uh, if they leave the South Side. And then there's the ongoing mystery of the shooting at White Sox Park that took place a week ago. And police still haven't figured out who did the shooting, uh, where the shot came from. It's just this mystery. And I'm, I'm totally obsessed with this. I admit this. I stop people in the street and ask them for their opinion on this. A lot of people, you know, it's like the typical divide when it comes to the world, what people are, know about, what they don't know about. You'd be stunned, ladies and gentlemen, how many people do have no idea that this is even going on. And I tell them the great detail about the shooting. And uh, <laughs> then I go, you should listen to the Ben Drowski show. We've been discussing this all week. Uh, and so a lot of going on with the Chicago White Sox for a team that's doing so horribly. Uh, anyway, the part about this interview uh, that Jerry Reinsdorf gave, apparently was a pool reporter. So Jerry Reinsdorf, stop one more time, a very successful businessman. Uh, has owned the White Sox since uh, the early uh, 80s. And um, he's been kind of like Greta Garbo over the last 10 years. Older listeners know who Greta Garbo is. She was the movie star who decided she wasn't going to talk to anybody anymore. And that's kind of how Jerry Reinsdorf uh, has done it. He's just kind of disappeared. I think they said it's been about 10 years since he gave his last interview. So he felt obliged to give an interview uh, since the White Sox are so much in the news. And it was a pool reporter. It's like so one person gets ushered in on behalf of all the press, which is an interesting way of doing it. Various Chicago mayors may have thought of that down through the years. I don't think any of them ever tried it. Uh, <laughs> one reporter gets to speak to me, and that's it. Uh, about a, two weeks ago, uh, Reinsdorf, excuse me, somebody gave an interview 
with Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business. Somebody close to Rhymes, classic Chicago media, well, media in general. Someone unidentified source close to Jerry Reinsdorf is how it was identified. So I'm reading that. And like most jaded observers of politics in this town, I just assumed it was Jerry Reinsdorf uh, who just didn't want to be identified. Del Marie knows the game. Uh, so it was somebody close to Jerry Reinsdorf. Uh, and in that interview with Greg Hines, that person close to Jerry Reinsdorf uh, said that uh, Jerry Reinsdorf is thinking about either selling the team, uh, renegotiating the lease with the state, which is a very generous lease to the Chicago White Sox, to put it mildly, uh, or uh, perhaps moving the team to another venue, like a suburb, Nashville, Tennessee, even. Uh, That's what somebody close to Jerry Reinsdorf told Cranes. So in the part of the interview uh, that was in today's Sun-Times and the Tribune, they both had it with the pool reporter, whoever it was, now, I'm reading from today's uh, Sun-Times article. Reinsdorf also addressed a Crane Chicago business story that broke last week about the ballpark. Quote, I've been reading that I've been threatening to move to Nashville, Reinsdorf said. Quote, that article didn't come from me, but it's obvious if we have six years on the lease, we've got to decide what the future is going to be. But I never threatened to move out. We haven't even begun to have discussions with the Illinois Sports Facilities Authority. That's and the quote. That's the state entity that oversees the ballpark. Now, here's the part that makes me wondering. I'm going to bring in Delmarie, and here's the quote: "That article didn't come from me." Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> First of all, welcome back. Uh, Del Marie Cobb to my humble little podcast. It's always a blast talking politics with you. Uh, Del Marie been in the business for a long time uh, as a person who's dealt with reporters, uh, as a strategist for various candidates, uh, as a person who's had to deal with the powerful, uh, and you know how the game is played. In your humble opinion, did that article that dropped in Cranes, which laid out Jerry Reinsdorf's options, come from Jerry? Or, as Jerry say, it just was like some unknown entity in the world dropped in and called Greg Hines up at Cranes and said, hey, this is what Jerry Reinsdorf's thinking. In other words, had nothing to do with Jerry Reinsdorf. Your thoughts? <laughs> well, also having been a reporter, uh, and given that Greg is a reporter that's been around for a long time, uh, it's about reliable sources. And I don't think just anybody could have said to Greg Hines, oh, by the way, let me give you this scoop. Uh, <laughs> you know, Jerry Reisdorf is thinking about taking the team to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and, and Greg would have run with it. Oh, great. I got an exclusive here. Let me run with this. So I don't think it really happened that way. Um, I think it had to be someone who would be considered a reliable source. And a a reliable source is the horse. Uh, a reliable source is uh, the horse. What do they call it? Plausible deniability. <laughs> That's an old Reagan term. You know, the president needs plausible deniability. In other words, denying that he knows what's going on in a, a way that is more or less believable. I don't know why. Maybe you can help me with this as a strategist. Why would Jerry Reinsdorf want to distance himself 
from that column. I think that Greg's column pretty much laid out the way Jerry Reinsdorf views the world. Uh, and it was sort of an opening salvo, if you will, in the negotiations, some very real substantive negotiations that'll go over the terms of the lease agreement that the state has with the White Sox uh, over the, the, the ballpark at 35th. I don't know why he would distance himself from it or try to like he didn't want to be associated. He didn't want people to think that he would actually get on the phone or have one of his uh Allies get on the phone and call Greg Hines and drop the story. What is the purpose, in your humble opinion, of having plausible deniability in this matter? Well, I think timing is everything. <laughs> and this has not been a very good week for the uh, or uh, two weeks for the White Sox. And probably that story floating at a different time might have been okay. But when you are talking about somebody being shot inside the ballpark when you're talking about your two top people being fired. And then on top of that, you've got a team that's doing horribly. And when expectations were so high and fourth, you uh, are now talking about leaving the city and uh, as if the city is the blame for how bad the team is doing. Well put. So I get it now. Now I understand. It's like, uh-oh, this was not a good time for me to uh, drop this uh, little bombshell with poor Greg Hines. Greg, I'm going to kind of throw you under the bus here <laughs> and sort of act like you just made it up or something. Uh, you had a conversation with your Uber driver and pretended uh, that person was me. No, he more or less substantiated everything Greg said in the next sentence where he goes, uh, but obviously, uh, if you have six years uh, to decide what the future is going to be, in other words, yeah, I am renegotiating and it's beginning now. Um, all right. The last time we were on the show, I told you this. Uh, we discussed the south side of Chicago uh, as the site for the Bears uh, stadium. And I just want to say that that show that we did is the second most listened to uh, show in the history of my humble little podcast. So people have tremendous interest in what Delmarie Cobb has to say about the South Side of Chicago uh, as an entity, as a, like a, a thought in people's minds in this city and our sporting teams. And in that particular show, you were talking about how you support a stadium where the old steel mill was on the South Side at 87th Street, and you raised the issue. What is about the psychological attitude that this city has toward the south side that is so immediately ruled out like oh it really is and it really is um you know let me just say this i, I give an example i often talk to uh young white kids and i'll tell you know i'll be talking about the city and the politics and the so and so and i see their eyes and you know, you know, when people's eyes are shifting because they're trying to think and they're trying to figure out, well, what is she talking about? Why wouldn't they do that? She's making it make so much sense, but nobody's doing it. And I stop them. Stop. <laughs> I, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to make sense of racism. There, racism makes no sense. So don't try to make sense of it. And then they sort of like, oh, OK. <laughs> and so. That's what this is. I mean, people don't want to call it out. People would rather think it's something else. But the things that are happening on the south side of Chicago and the west side of Chicago aren't for any other reason. The lack of everything, 
the lack of grocery stores, the lack of banks, the lack of reliable transportation, the lack of good education, the lack of affordable housing, you know, the lack of population. You just go down the list, the lack of. And that didn't just happen by accident. And it just doesn't follow Black people around <laughs> because they're Black. It happens because of public policies that are put in place that ignore Black communities and ignore investing in Black communities, ignore looking at Black people as whole and entitled entities. And so that is why when you talk about the South Side, you know, these are not original ideas that are so, you know, I'm such a genius. <laughs> this is because this makes sense. Why does it make sense to me and not the people who are in place to come up with public policies that are supposed to be for everyone? All right. Uh, and uh, in addition to the Bears Stadium, uh, there's also now the issue of the White Sox Stadium. <laughs> uh, and the timing uh, with the, the White, as you pointed out, uh, with the White Sox uh, whoever it was, whoever it was that called Greg Hines, opening up uh, this line of discussion, maybe it was the Uber driver, uh, whoever it was that had that conversation with Greg, uh, beginning this discussion as to whether the White Sox were going to leave the South Side comes at the very moment that the city is dealing with this mystery of the shooting at the Sox Park. And uh, in this article, Jerry Reinsdorf says uh, that in his belief, the shot came from outside the stadium. So again, people are just dropping in on this conversation for the first time that we've had for over a week now. <laughs> a week ago, there was a, a shooting uh, somewhere uh, in or outside of White Sox Park. Uh, two people were hit. Uh, one woman was grazed uh, with the bullet. Another woman uh, was the bullet struck her in the leg, had more serious injury, more bleeding. Uh, and then the, the, a bullet was discovered in the hoodie of a third a woman at the game in the bleachers. Personally, I do not know how uh, the bullet could have come from the outside of the stadium. So I'm very skeptical about that. Um, but it has raised the issue of whether the South Side is safe and whether the White Sox should just leave just because, just to get away from the South Side, or whether they need an even more generous offering from the state to stay in this site. That's what I'm saying. It's like, man, it couldn't. the timing couldn't have been worse for absolutely everybody. It's never a good time to have a shooting at a ballpark, uh, but in this particular case, it opened up all these other questions and issues. Your thoughts on the Sox staying on the South side. Well, that's exactly my thought in terms of saying that the, sh the shooting came from outside the stadium. Uh, that's exactly the, the message that it sends that uh, see, it's not safe over here. Uh, you can't even go to the ballpark and enjoy yourself. And we've got all these people from all over. And the last thing we wanna do is put their lives at risk. And so it takes the onus completely off of the people who were involved in the shooting and puts the onus on the neighborhood and once again victimizes the people who are actually victims already. And, and so I have such a problem with that 
um, I am a White Sox fan. I have lived no more than I, not even 10 blocks from the White Sox my entire life. Uh, baseball was the only sport my dad liked and he liked the Sox and the Cubs equally. He's probably one of the few, but he liked them both equally. He would have one on television, the other on radio, or one on radio and the other on television all, all the time. And uh, my mother would say, you're not going to monopolize both of these things. <laughs> because, of course, back then, you didn't have choices. And so, uh, you know, I want the White Sox to stay where they are. I love the White Sox. But we also know, again, going back to what we were originally talking about, racism, and public policy, uh, the difference between Wrigley Field and um, and White Sox Park is Wrigleyville. And uh, Comiskey Park and White Sox Park has had every opportunity to make White Sox Park and this area, Bronzeville, into Wrigleyville. And in fact, one of the things that I helped to do uh, towards that end myself is I convinced uh, Congressman Bobby Rush to, ch to, to turn the uh, Metro stop that, that's on 35th into a Metro stop. It was a, uh, as you know, it was a bypass. And I said, you know, we need to make that a Metro stop. I said, because you've got all the people from the South side who come to the ballpark from the South suburbs. You've got people coming in from other, you know, Indiana, they can all come to the ballpark they can all come to 35th Street They'll, and then let's have, you know, other stores and businesses so that we can revitalize the area. And of course, that never happened. Um, and it hasn't happened because there hasn't been a will to make it happen. Even no. the design of the um, of the uh, public safety building, when we set I set in on many uh uh, forums where strategic sessions where we were trying to figure out how to revitalize Bronzeville and what would it take to uh, to reinvigorate the uh, commercial corridor of 35th Street and 31st Street that were there when I was a little girl. And um, uh, instead, when they built the, uh, the uh, public safety building, instead of moving it back so that it could have been some stores on 35th Street, they put it right on 35th Street. So when you look at 35th Street, you've got, you know, you come to you come to Michigan, and then you've got the public safety building all the way to state, and then you go to state, and you've got a few uh, uh, stores, and then of course you have nothing because they they got rid of the public housing and haven't rebuilt it yet, and then you have the stadium. So in other words, here's a ballpark, and you've got three or four blocks surrounding it that are empty. What sense does that make? And how is that even possible? So when you say there hasn't been a will to make that happen, uh, who are you talking about in that sentence? Who doesn't, who lacks the will to make it happen? The public and private sector. They lack the will. Reinsdorf could, could have been very much an architect of that. Uh, he certainly has the wherewithal to do that. So it's a lack of will on, from both the private and public sector. And why? Because it's black people. <laughs> because it's in a black community. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine a major a major league baseball field being anywhere else and having blocks and blocks around it that are empty? Yeah. No, it's uh like 
general theme of the last conversation we had on this is, again, uh, the psychology of developing on the south side is so different than the psychology of developing on the north side. Pretty much everything that happens on the south side is different than everything that happens on the north side. The attitudes are so profoundly different. I mean, uh, Ramon Hussein and I were having a long conversation. It's going to drop this weekend uh, about uh, the Montrose uh, Ab- Harbor Swim Club, the Friday Swim Club, where over 2,000 people were jumping in the lake every Friday morning. And it finally uh, it made the Sun-Times. And then the, the city said, this is too dangerous. And some, and we were and she, we were laughing. Can you imagine if it was Promontory Point or some uh, beach on the south side where 2,000 black people gathering every day to jump in the lake i i, I just feel it would be a different attitude Do you follow what i'm saying Delmar? everything about the south side and the attitude toward the south side is different than the attitude toward the north side that's because the attitude whether we want to believe it or not is in the dna and the dna is black people are less than black people are not re- deserving uh that's that's the premise so when you start with that premise you don't really have very far to go. <laughs> you have nowhere else to go because if you start developing, if you start doing giving the black community all the amenities that you give to the white community, then you would be saying that's not true. <laughs> all right. Well, it's uh, speaking of the uh, South Side and speaking of issues that have been coming to the surface for a long time. I think it was this week there was a meeting at the Proud Hurry Club nightclub over on 53rd street in uh is that technically hyde park or ken i guess it's hyde park hyde park where promotion moment we will be hosting first tuesday uh uh, this tuesday with mayor brandon johnson so um everybody come on down to uh 53rd street but this particular meeting was a neighborhood meeting regarding asylum seekers that were the issue of where they should be housed and a proposal to house them uh, on the south side in uh, hyde park uh, and drew some harsh response, to put it mildly, uh, from residents uh, of that area. Don't put them in this neighborhood. Uh, your thoughts about that meeting and this issue? Well, you know, I've heard people talking about it. They don't. They didn't feel like the community had been engaged uh, prior to the decision being made. And you know, these are middle class African Americans uh, and white people, of course, together. Uh, This is one of the few communities in the city where you have an equal amount of well-off black people and white people living together uh, with amenities um, and can and can actually spend money that stays in their neighborhood versus leakage. Uh, So they're looking and saying, oh, no, uh -uh." Uh, you know, we don't want our community um, destroyed because. Again, it's not about the the uh, Latinos who are coming to the community. That's not what it is. It's about the lack of resources. It's about the lack of wraparound services. It's about the lack of a plan, a strategic plan to help these people get to the next level, which is what everybody wants for everybody. And 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 the fact that again, the what you see uh, in Inglewood is the lack of investment uh, for the people who live there. But then we're gonna find money for people who have come from somewhere else. Uh, we're, and so that's, again, for black people, it becomes an ongoing trauma that everybody can make it but us. 
everybody who comes into this country gets a leg up before we do. No matter who it is, they can be here five minutes and next thing you know, we're still at the bottom of the of the totem pole. And so, you know, we have seen it over and over again. And that's the scar tissue that's there from years and years and centuries of seeing this played out over and over and over again. Do you uh, think there's a better way that the Johnson administration can deal with this, not only just uh, in terms of uh, finding homes and uh, residences for uh, asylum seekers, but just also on the political end of it, uh, assuring folks uh, that helping asylum seekers does not necessarily mean you're not going to be helping people who live, let's say, in Kenwood or Hyde Park, uh, et cetera. Well, yes, you've got to assure people of that, but you also um, have to engage the community. They have to be a part of the decision making. I mean, that's part of what's wrong in the city is that the people, especially African-Americans, feel like they are never engaged. They're always imposed upon. Uh, and so you like it or lump it. That's what we get all the time. Uh, and when we say, you know, we don't like it, oh, well, it's a done deal. Yeah. Uh, just like, you know, the money that was put into the schools. Uh, he, you know, here you have uh, 50 schools shuttered. Uh, you've been asking for the city to find money to turn them into some kind of community center, some kind of something that anchors the community, that revitalizes the community, that gets people engaged. There's no money for it. And then all of a sudden there's $300 million to uh, rehab a building for migrants. And you think black people don't feel insulted by that? You don't think that's a uh, that's completely disrespectful and a slight and that they're not going to say anything? And again, they're saying something because they have seen it. They have seen this repeated for centuries. Yeah. I uh I've said this so many times, said it uh to you, to other guests, I put it in writing. Um uh, Listen, this is the plan. I, I know people say, oh, Ben, you're a conspiracy theory. No, I, I've spent 40 years following how the city spends its money and the economic development plans in the city uh, going back to the 70s. We're going to do a whole show about this. Uh, Steve Yoshida, get ready for that. Uh, about uh, He's a guest who's going to come on who studied this. Uh, about going back to 1973 with the old man daily. There were development plans that were intended is just to boil it down to gentrify Chicago. So Del Marie, when uh, population falls in the city of Chicago, there's a whole bunch of factors that led to that, but that's like a plus from the city's perspective. No one will say that. Do you follow what I'm saying, Del Marie? No one's going to come out and say, oh, it worked. <clears throat> Black population fell in the city of Chicago, but that's essentially been the plan all along. They call it gentrification. If the city becomes too expensive. And, and uh, you, so you, you, then you have a, a reason to close schools. Once you close schools, you get vacant schools. Well, if you put something in those schools like you've been advocating, that would just encourage people to stay. Well, the point is not to encourage them to stay. The, the point is to get them to leave. And um, so this has been going on. Uh, for all these 40 years, and you're right, symbolically, people see money being expended 
to uh, relocate asylum seekers, and they're going, wait a minute. Why weren't you spending money to make sure we stayed? And it's because it's so twisted and weird. I, the asylum seekers are welcome to a certain degree, but the black people aren't. No, I always, I've been saying for, for years now that um, Latinos are the minority of choice. Uh, we're not the minority of choice. We've never been the minority of choice. Uh, and, and when I say that, I'm talking about American black people. It's not black people. Uh, it's American black people, those who have the baggage of slavery. Um, we're the ones who are undesirable in this country. Uh, other black people from other places are far more desirable than us. And every, every American black person knows that. And, um, and deals with that. So, you know, that's, I mean, it goes back to our original conversation about White Sox uh, Park. And um, I always, I, I give the example of, so when the White Sox were getting ready to build their the new stadium, um, they were gonna displace all these black people uh, in the area who had been around for, for years, because this was Bronzeville. And Bronzeville, you know, was historically the, economic and political cradle of African Americans in Chicago and the world, really. And, um, and, but it was black people in the community who said, oh no, no, you're not gonna do that. You're going to build replacement housing, one for one replacement housing. So for every one house they got rid of, they had to build a house in, in Bronzeville. And, uh, and I can point out the houses, they're still here. Um, I didn't like them. I thought they were terrible looking, but uh, they were built and they served their purpose and it kept the community from completely dying out. Uh, but then look at what happened with Norfolk Southern over um, on 55th Street. Here you have a major boulevard, Garfield Boulevard, which was a major boulevard, businesses and everything. And you look over there now and it'll, it'll make you cry. Uh, what it has fallen to. And part of the reason is you have this major corporation, Norfolk Southern, that touches three or four wards, that walled itself off from the community, displaced over a hundred families. And how do you displace a hundred families and you don't offer them replacement housing to stay in the same area? So when you talk about all the ways they've gotten rid of black people, 250,000 black people have left the city of Chicago since 2000 all the ways they've gotten rid of black people and done nothing, nothing to encourage their, you, them to come back. I mean, you look at the, uh, the, the demolition of the housing projects and here we are 20 years later and they've only built a rebuilt a fraction of them, a fraction of them. There was never any intent to bring these people back. And especially you look along uh, um, State Street and um, I remember seeing um, uh, the Invisible Institute has a video on their website where they talk about daily uh, telling the police to make sure no one came back to State Street and lingered or loitered at all. And so if you saw anybody walking up and down State Street after they got rid of the, uh, uh, the housing projects, run them off. And so, you know, there, there was a concerted effort to make sure that, you know, less welcome people back to this community by offering cheaper housing, but not 
do anything for the people who live here to help them have a better quality of life. The daily in that sentence, I presume, is baby daily. Uh, yeah. Okay, not daddy daily. Yes. I was referring to daddy daily when I said uh, the, the plan right. uh, that was implemented in 1973. There was a different daily. And but I think the difference might- is that the baby daily was worse than daddy daily in terms of what the destruction to the black community. He was worse. Wow. Let me think about that. Wow. What a statement. Oh, no, he was. <laughs> I mean, when you look at what he did, at least at least the father knew he when you look at the communities and the relationships he had with some of the black leaders. Now, they might not have been people I was happy about, (laughs) but the bottom line is they actually got something out of having a relationship with him. Our communities didn't look like they do now. I mean, when you had Dawson, when you had Barnett in, in 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 Bronzeville. We had thriving communities when you had Stroger in the Eighth Ward. I mean, when you had uh, 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 Sawyer in the Sixth Ward. These were these were vital communities. Yeah. Look under Sun Daily, and look what happened. They all died. Well, this is uh, let's go here because um, Sun Daily, Baby Daily, as we call him, Richard M. Daily, <laughs> the Daily that you all know, millennials. Uh, that daily was elected with different rhetoric surrounding himself uh, and, and a different persona than his father in many ways. Uh, and that daily embraced, at least in, uh, in rhetoric, uh, the liberal reformers who live along the lakefront. Uh, and I heard the argument, it was so bizarre, I heard the argument from liberal reformers along the lakefront from as long as I've been here. That the problem with Chicago is the political machine and patronage and three men on a garbage truck. I've heard this so many times, you know, we're wasting money uh, with all these city workers and we could do things more efficiently and it's a tax. And uh, I always like, I, I never bought into that completely, even though I live on the North Lake and I'm surrounded uh, by these people, Del Marie, because I always viewed it as an investment. So, okay, maybe it's wasteful or more. there's more efficient ways to collect garbage than have three people on a garbage truck. He's having this argument with Marty Ober in the old ornament of the 43rd Ward. But on the other hand, that's an employee. He has to live in the city of Chicago, paying taxes, sending his kids to the neighborhood schools, buying having disposable income that it could spend locally i don't know i i could argue it's an investment that the city is making in itself it's a human being with a job <laughs> why are we so against that and i remember the other great uh they loved him on the lakefront forrest claypool who was with the cook county board of commissioners running against john stroger talking about the inefficiency the bloated government the waste we're going to get rid of these people we're going to lower your taxes all all the reformers on the lakefront ran and voted for claypool even though he was part of the he was baby daly's chief of staff and so they hated like in their minds they hated patronage and waste when it was like a a black guy in a garbage truck, <laughs> or it was John Stroger's political organization. And I, I could never, I voted for Stroger. I'll be honest with you, Delmarie. I, I was my proudest vote. He was in a coma. I still voted for Stroger. <laughs> I would do it again. And um, 
Do you follow what I'm saying? I just understand exactly what you're saying because my dad was a precinct captain, and and so I know what uh, precinct captains were able to do for people in the community. Uh, one of the things I talk about uh, that I have vivid memories of is every year um, my dad was given um, ten openings at this at the uh, post office during Christmas that he could give jobs to 10 people and um and so he he would you know he would ask my mom (laughs) you know who do you think should have these jobs and I remember one of the women who lived in our building at the time she was a young woman uh she had seven kids by the time she was 27 years old I never will forget that and uh, but she loved my mother she loved talking to my mother she thought she was so wise and and so my mother would every year get get her make sure she got a job at the post office and she'd make a little money every year and she looked so forward to those jobs she wound up going back to school getting her degree wound up being uh an executive at a company i mean her whole life changed over the course of you know the time i knew her and you know i think that had something to do with it because she got a chance to see something else uh, because she was on welfare with, with seven kids. And um, so, you know, there were domino effects to this. This wasn't just about patronage. And, and what you say is I I laugh about it because all of that is used against black people as if it's a bad thing. And, um, and, and yet you take all of that away and the white elected officials still know how to go around it. They still know how to give their friends jobs. And so they still are able to do it. I mean, all you have to do is listen to what's going on with Madigan and, and Mapes and all of them. They still know how to make that happen. And so you've taken all of that away from the black elected officials and they absolutely have no power. Oh, no, they, it, it's it's beyond Madigan. It's so what they do. So you I remember the, one of the first fights of the Rahm administration, employees in the water department. So there were employees in the water department with residency requirements in the city of Chicago, <clears throat> and they had to live in the city. And in the name of efficiency, Rahm uh, privatized those jobs. So the same job, the same uh, duties that those city employees did were uh, farmed out to a private company who hired people to do those. So the people who actually do the work get less money. Uh, they don't have to live in the city of Chicago. More money goes to the people who own the company who probably don't live in the city of Chicago. And uh, and then those people contribute to uh, Mayor Daley, Mayor Rahm's campaign. So patronage still exists it's just a different kind of patronage. Exactly. And you look at the at the, the uh, airport. I mean, I remember, uh, and I think I talked to you about this before, carrying this article that was a Wall Street Journal pencil sketch of a red cap, of a sky cap at O'Hare, who was making $200,000 a year in tips. And so as I tell everybody, which is one of the reasons what I talk about the South Suburban Airport, so I tell everybody, you know, he may... He may be a sky cap, but his children will have a very middle-class life because he was making $200,000 a year in tips. Fast forward, where are the black sky caps at O'Hare now? The majority of them, it has been privatized. The majority of them are foreign born. They're not American born. And you you would be hard pressed to find a black sky cap at O'Hare now. 
Man, two hundred thousand dollars. Wow. In tips? In tips. I don't let's pause and absorb that. <laughs> I went in the wrong career. Uh <laughs> but you can see how that's possible. No, I, I understand that. I understand mm-hmm. the point you're making very clearly. And going back to the migrant situation, uh the asylum seeker situation, uh this is a national problem. This is a national issue. And so I'm with I actually agree uh with pretty much everybody uh well the mayor mayor Johnson, Alderwoman Taylor, they all say the same thing. Where are the fa- Eric Adams in New York? Mayor Eric Adams in New York. They're saying the same thing. Where's the feds? Where's the money? This the it, the issue is that people are coming to this country uh from the south south of texas and uh the texas governor republican is busing them or flying them to northern cities blue cities all right he's making a political point so i welcome him me personally i think it's a good addition chicago's population has fallen we we need people in the city all right uh but the city, the relocation expenses. Chicago needs assistance. We need a partnership. And you know what? Why should it be viewed as a, a deprivation to the South Side? Why can't we get jobs on the South Side for people who live like in the Fourth Ward or where they were objecting to this? Desmond Yancey's Fifth Ward, working in uh, the industry of resettling. The asylum seekers, building homes. I don't understand, Delmarie, why we don't see this as an opportunity, not just in the city of Chicago, not just the state of Illinois, but the Democratic Party nationally. Like, this could be the next New Deal. This could be the great jobs program. You follow what I'm saying? I, I agree 100%. That, that this is about uh, building homes and and reinvesting in the community if you're going to do it, but it's also about sharing the pain. And one community shouldn't be sharing all the pain, and and another community not experiencing any of the pain, uh, uh, because it's a citywide problem. I mean, it needs to be a citywide problem, and uh, and so wherever there's space and opportunity to house migrants, that's what we should be doing. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I just want to point out before we leave this topic. Uh, about a week ago, I was on vacation, so it happened when I wasn't in town. But a shout out to the Tribune for their story about how money was being ported into the Lincoln Par- uh, Lincoln Yards TIF on the north side. And so, folks, so we're concentrating on black people uh, yelling at a meeting at the Promontory Club on the, in uh, Hyde Park about the city moving uh, Hispanic residents uh, into uh, vacant buildings there. Meanwhile, yes, no one's saying a word. Like tens of millions of dollars were moved from one TIF district to another TIF district on the north side. So, like, these inequities are baked into our system, Delmarie. That's why I say if it's not a plan, it's sure working like it's a plan. These inequities are baked into the system. And you and I have talked about this, uh, the, the, uh, um, Project 78 and the Lincoln Yards uh, TIFs forever, because I mean, I can't, if there's any example of inequity, I mean, that's got to be it. That something can, um, you know, 2.4 billion 
like that at the, you know, you snap your fingers and all of a sudden we can do that. But you can't do that for any of the black communities at all. And in fact, protest if anybody suggests it. That's what I'm saying. There's a, the white community has a million ways around it. All the things that we're talking about, patronage, welfare, everything, you know, there's a million ways around it and you call it by another name, but it's still the same. Mm. And, and so again, black people are so attuned to it because we've seen it so much. I mean, you talk about dog whistles, we've seen it, we've heard it, we've experienced it, we've lived it. I mean, it's just, it's just there. And so where you may have to explain to somebody white, that's happening. As soon as we see it, we experience it. Um, another example of that, um, as you know, Ida's Legacy, um, at our last event, we gave Anjanette Young a, um, an award, uh, Ida's Legacy Award, uh, for her selfless courage in letting herself uh, be shown publicly uh, worldwide standing in front of police in her own home naked uh, during a wrongful police raid. And if you read the article in the, in the Sun-Times, it said, I got emotional. And I got emotional because it goes back to what I said to you earlier about the scar tissue. And that's when I really realized that there's scar tissue here that has not been tapped into, that has not been addressed, uh, that I probably don't even know. And because... The moment I saw that video on the news, I started crying uncontrollably because I felt like I had been swept away to a time in history where it was me standing on an um, auction block while white men walked around me to determine how much I was worth. And that's what she felt. That's what I felt. That's what every Black woman I know who I talked to felt. And I had never felt that before in my life. And immediately that was swept over me. And so those are the things that no one will understand unless you've lived in my shoes. Yeah, that was a, a, a good riff. And Engineer Young, uh, of course, was uh, just to fill in, was coming out of the shower when uh, God, it was like four years ago, five years ago. It was, it was during Mayor Rahm was the mayor, I think. And police had the wrong address and they were busted into her house looking for something. Uh, oop, it was an oops moment. It sure took him a long time to realize it was an oops moment. 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Yeah. I saw that picture uh, in the bright one. I think I said it to you actually of you and the sun times get with uh, Anjanette Young. Shout out Anjanette Young. All right. Before I leave the city of Chicago, go national. We're all fixated on that first 100 days of Mayor Johnson. It's kind of funny. I, I'm no different than anybody else in the media. It's 100 days. we got to bring Mayor Johnson to the promontory. It's 100 days. Everybody's 100 days, 100 days. Uh, we're a weird people, uh, media people. I admit it. Uh, we are weird. Uh, so, uh, Del Marie, the first 100 days of Brandon Johnson. Uh, you give him an A, you give him a B, you give him a pass, you give him an incomplete. What's your thoughts on the first 100 days? Well, I mean, I think that he at least he's – checked off one of his boxes and and that was a police superintendent and i think that's a major box uh to check off i mean it hasn't been confirmed yet by the city council but uh the fact that one was chosen somebody who everybody seems to support uh the selection and someone who's from the city so 
uh, I think that will lay the set the tone for uh, a lot of his administration going forward because of so many of the problems that we face in the city that are police related. So, uh, you know, the violence, the crime, um, uh, the, um, the misconduct, uh, the consent decree, all of those things. Uh, so I think that was a very important thing that was hanging over him. Uh, of course, the migrant situation is a major issue that he's gonna have to deal with. And these are things, that, both of those are things he's inherited. Uh, he's going to be dealing with the budget soon. Uh, he's got to put that in place. He had less time to put, put a, um, uh, uh, an administration together than most of his predecessors. So even after he took office, he was still putting out a transition report. They were still working on the transition. So he's been slow to uh, put everybody in place. Um, I don't agree with everyone he's put in place, <laughs> however, because uh, I think we should be getting as far away from the ROM and daily administrations as we can, not recycling them. Um, but anyway, um, so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with him. I mean, I, I, I'm not giving him a grade one way or the other. I'm still a wait and see, uh, but I still hope, hope and promise that he's going to be a very different mayor and a breath of fresh air for progressives. And of course, you know, governing is so much different than running for office. And uh, he's got to deal with all the things that come at you that you can't foresee uh, that just happen because you're in that position. Yeah. And uh, and so this is this is where the rubber meets the road. It's what kind of administrator or an executive are you? Uh, well put. Yeah, it's a different ballgame when you're uh, you are the mayor and every day all of a sudden things change. Uh, well, I didn't see this coming. And uh, you're dealing with, you know, a crisis that you never would anticipate or even not even a crisis sometimes like the story about uh, the Montrose Beach Swimming Club. It's like exactly a crisis. But who would have thought, you know, suddenly you have to have an opinion about it, you have to have a policy on it. Uh, and then the ongoing uh, uh situation with uh, the as you said the asylum seekers being moved into chicago uh gregory abbott uh the tech the texas governor yeah he, uh, listen joe biden if you're listening i know you're a big listener to this show you gotta help out you gotta help out the cities i mean it, there's it's a the federal budget is billions and billions of dollars there's a a coin here and a coin there. You can drop in a bucket and send it to Chicago and you'll be a hero. Make- well, it's just like Jeanette Taylor said the other day. I mean, you printed money for COVID. You need to print money for this. Yeah, I'm with you, JT. All the women, Jeanette Taylor, I'm with you 100% on that. I uh, took some criticism on this show for some comments I made about Dr. Awadi. My position on Dr. Awadi is that I felt he should have fired her like within the first week or so. Uh, he said he was going to do it, the former health commissioner. Um, and so we should have followed through it, in my humble opinion. Instead, he waited like, I don't know, three months. And then he took a lot of heat uh, for the way he handled it in the mainstream press. Uh, and I took some uh, criticism myself from some of Dr. Wadi's uh, supporters who said I'm unfair to her. Um, and that she's a far greater uh, servant of the people, public servant to the people that I gave her credit for. What are your general thoughts about Dr. Awadi's legacy and how Brandon Johnson handled her firing? 
uh, my biggest issue with that whole uh, departure is the way it was handled. Uh, I mean, he, the mayor, when he was a candidate, said he would probably get rid of her. So she knew the day was coming. Um, I probably would have left. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have waited, wouldn't have waited to be fired, knowing me, uh, because I am one of those people who cuts off my nose to spite my face. Um, but she did. And I just think he could have handled it differently, allowed her to say goodbye to her staff, uh, not do it five o'clock on a Friday and then say, no, there's the door. Um, I don't think um, that was as classy a moment as it should have been. Uh, and there was no reason for it. Um, you know, I mean, there, he, he has no reason to be petty or vindictive or any of that. And so I think that would have been a different way to handle that. Uh, as far as Arwadi is concerned, uh, I mean, given what was going on at the time, um, I thought she and, um, and now I've gone blank on um, the, the woman from the state. Uh, I, have, I haven't talked to her since she went to Mount Sinai. The Mount Sinai, yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, I thought both of them, they were the face of, of, of COVID from the city and the state level. And I think they did a good job in terms of keeping people informed. Uh, now, carrying out policies in terms of uh, Lori Lightfoot and the CTU, um, Arwadi had to do what she was told to do because she was an employee. Uh, and, and that's as far as I'm concerned about that, is that she did what she was supposed to do uh, as an employee. Um, was it right? I mean, I don't necessarily think it was right. I think people had a reason to be afraid of sending their kids back to school too soon. Uh, and if you can, and if you say, as she has said, that there was a, a, a real-time experiment going on because Catholic schools went back versus public schools, uh, then, you know, that's up for debate. Oh, yeah. I uh, I actually uh, made the argument uh, to uh, our woman, Rosanna Rodriguez, who she's on the show. It was funny. The day we recorded that uh, episode, uh, or maybe the day before, it was the day before Arwadi uh, was fired. My argument was <clears throat> she's a political health commissioner. She does what the mayor says. Uh, generally, that's what appointees do. Can't think of one appointee in the city of Chicago <laughs> who ever openly defied a mayor. Uh, and so the mayor change, she'll change. You know, <clears throat> she'll just follow what Brandon Johnson is saying. So Lori Lightfoot did not believe in reopening the mental health clinics. Uh, Arwadi stood by her, uh, Lori Lightfoot, on that decision. Brandon Johnson comes in, she'll support reopening them. Hey, isn't that funny how it works? Mayor changes, she changes. Exactly. Uh, and I said that there was a, just keep her around. If she's going to do what the mayor says anyway, that she's just going to do what Brandon does, says. And uh, all the woman Rodriguez said, no, we want a true believer, uh, somebody who actually believes in these policies as opposed to uh, a flag blowing in the wind. Um, but uh, I have been severely chastised by many of my listeners uh, for being too harsh on or what is so I like to apologize to my listeners who are upset by that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Let's not relitigate all that stuff. A Republican debate. Well, national will close with it. The national. I watched that debate. Uh, Delmarie, I know you did too, political junkies. I'm struck by one thing. How many Democrats didn't watch the debate? And I've had, that caught me off guard. If you're a political junkie, you're a political junkie. I mean, it's, <laughs> but no, nah, I don't watch the debate. Whatever. They didn't watch the debate. So I'm uh, explaining to them what happened in that debate is really, 
kind of interesting what a split and divided country we are. Uh, just another example. Uh, general thoughts on the debate and uh, what it says about where the Republican Party is right now. No, and I watch, like you, I watch all the debates, uh, Republican and Democrat, because I don't want to miss anything. And I want to know what these crazy people are talking about. <laughs> And just how crazy they are. Um, and so it's interesting. I think we got a, a chance to see some of that um, because, you know, them embracing this whole MAGA philosophy and cult. Um, and just because you have a different, um, uh, a more palatable exterior uh, doesn't make it any less dangerous. And um, and so uh, I thought that, you know, some of these people showed their true colors uh, during that debate. But uh, the, I, the one thing I did walk away from in terms of um, who I thought did a good job, uh, certainly I would never vote for her one way or the other, but I think uh, Haley certainly did a very good job of holding her own. And, um, and when you look at her background, she probably has the more diverse background of anybody there other than uh, Pence. Now, when you say that Nikki Haley did a good job, are you saying that because Nikki Haley said some things that you could more or less agree with? Or are you saying that it's strictly as uh, a uh, political strategist, handicapper, obsessive follower of politics, and you thought, oh, she advanced her cause. No, it was the latter. Okay. <laughs> I don't agree with anything she says. <laughs> but but in terms of making her case, I still, I can always see when somebody can, has done a good job making the case. Yeah. And, uh, and, and also when people come from a position of knowledge. And certainly she came from a position of knowledge uh, when it came to foreign policy, when it came to um, uh, local policy. Mm -hmm. um, I just think she did a very good job of holding her own and being able to articulate the issues and and advancing herself and elevating herself as somebody who actually could possibly be a presidential candidate uh, or nominee, I should say. Uh, so that's what I saw from her. Yeah. See, I, I've been I'm like a, been really thinking about this and my opinions have been uh, changing. And here's where I am now. Ask me sometime, something next week. I'll be different, I'm sure. Uh, but here's where I am right now. So the point of the debate was to advance their candidacies in the Republican primary. Okay, so they're now running in a general election where they're looking for swing voters uh, in Naperville to uh, vote for them. Uh, they're running to get the MAGA vote. MAGA dominates. Uh, and when I look at that debate, I do not think Nikki Haley helped herself. Uh, she may have scored some points. Uh, she may have pummeled uh, Ramaswamy. And it may have been fun to watch him get pummeled, even if I didn't even agree with her completely with the way things she was saying when she was pummeling him in terms of foreign policy. But it was fun watching you know, him uh, put in his place. But when I see that the polls of Republican voters show that Ramaswamy went up, uh, in that debate, from that debate, as as annoying as he was, almost insufferable. And Trump went up. I think Trump went up. I saw that in some poll. He wasn't even in the debate. I'm like, nobody did anything to help their cause. Uh, if 
if they appeal in any way to the Delmarie Cobbs of the world, they're not helping their cause in the Republican primary. Just saying, Delmarie. Exactly. And, and of course, that's what Nikki Haley was doing. She was looking beyond the primary because in her mind, uh, if somehow she became the nominee, magically, she became the nominee, she would have to expand her reach and, 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 and appeal to a broader uh, voter base. And so that's what she's running as. Uh, that's what Asa Hutchinson is running as. That's what Chris, uh, Chris Christie is running as. I mean, they're looking to try to expand their base beyond the primary. Now, based on what you said, we know they'll never get out of the primary <laughs> because these people are truly uh, behind uh, Donald Trump and Donald Trump-like. Yeah. That's all they're looking at is those people who are like Donald Trump or Donald Trump-like. And as you said, he wasn't even in the race. Uh, he was, I mean, even in the in the debate, but he loomed large over the debate mm -hmm. because you just look at how afraid they are to say anything against him. Yeah. I, I truly do not understand why Nikki Haley and Chris Christie remain in the Republican Party <laughs> at all. Uh, they are, there's so many Democrats I know who have similar views to them on issues of foreign policy, on issues of taxation. Uh, I believe the, uh, Nikki Haley and Chris Christie have wed themselves to a ferociously uh, anti-abortion position, but that's to survive in the Republican Party. I don't believe, I, I don't think they would have any hesitancy to become pro-choice. They're where they are on that issue because that's where they have to be because they're Republicans. Right. The Republican Party that they emerged from, that George Bush, daddy and son Republican Party, even the party of Reagan, it doesn't exist anymore, Delmarie. So I don't know why they don't just become centrist Dems. No, I agree. I mean, uh, Bush and Reagan and others wouldn't even recognize these people. Uh, as so-called Republicans at this point, because they have just, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, to, to, for people like us who have lived through this and to see this transformation and to see these people uh, just be crazy. I mean, they're crazy. They're just talking. I mean, what they're talking about is, you know, they're talking about you don't see what you think you see. Uh, they didn't say what you heard them say. Uh, you know, I mean, are these people who are rational people? Because they certainly aren't coming off as rational people at all. I mean, I don't understand why anyone who's rational at this point would be a Republican. Uh, well, I'm with you 100% on that one. Uh, well, listen, I mean, and I'm just going to have to be straightforward. I, I, lo I probably would have said that in 1984 okay what you just said i just to be honest i probably would have said that and i don't understand it i can never understand republicans it just got worse and worse and to your point how the state of the republican party under the state of maga it kind of summed up i was just reading before we went on the air uh of this trial of one of the um Pozzola is his name, uh, one of the insurgents. He got 10 years. He was sentenced to 10 years. This happened today. The story broke today before he went on the air. Uh, and um, it was at his sentencing hearing. Uh, and at his sentencing hearing, uh, 
he began this. So this is the guy who smashed the window at the Capitol. He was a proud boy and he smashed the window. You've all seen him. You've seen the footage. And uh, uh, so you got 10 years today. And um, before uh, his hearing, uh, he, he was pleading to the judge. Okay. And I happen to take a picture of this. Addressing the court, Mr. Prezola apologized to his two daughters and to his longtime partner, Lisa McGee, saying, quote, I have broken this family and crushed your heart, end of quote. He told Judge Kelly that he, quote, was a changed and humbled man, end of quote, who had taken responsibilities for his actions, quote, at times it feels like I live in an emotional black hole, he said. Then Miss McGee, his uh, partner spoke detailing all the ways in which Pozzola's case had harmed her and her family. Their daughters had lost friends, she said, and have suffered from harassment and depression. She had been unable to find work and become financially destroyed. So that was the plea, uh, Del Marie, to the judge before the sentence. He gets the 10 years. What does he do? What does he do? He goes, raises his fist and yells out, Trump won. Well, wait a minute. What, what? I mean, this just kind of reflects MAGA. You know what I'm saying, Dumbery? They say something <laughs> one minute, <laughs> then they don't get their way. And so they say something completely different the next minute. And then they deny what they said the first minute. And I saw this on uh, Ramaswamy is this one classic. Like they, they point out all the things he said. He goes, I never said that. And then they show the footage of him saying it. Trump was the same way. I never said it. That they show DeSantis is the same. He's denying, you know, all the things he's doing. And I never did that. That's just to me. I, I know that politicians fudge. Delmarie, you and I have seen this our whole life. I understand that game. But I this, this, this is kind of a new thing where you just deny what everyone sees that you did. Trump, we all saw Trump an attempt to coup, and they deny that he did it. Oh, boy, in court today. Oh, please, Judge, Your Honor, my family, I got caught up in something I don't understand, and I wish I hadn't done it. Give me, please, show sympathy for me. It gets 10 years. Trump won. <laughs> what? 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 You see what I'm saying, Demery? This is... Well, Trump made lying ex acceptable. And I mean, and he made lying acceptable from the very beginning. I mean, from the first day at the inauguration, when he said he had a bigger crowd there than Barack Obama. And so that was the beginning of him and, and us really knowing that he made lying acceptable. And everybody on his staff, um, his first press secretary, I can't think of his name, but his first press secretary, who then said, you know, that's, this is the end. He had the biggest crowd. The end. I'm not talking about it anymore. Uh, that's that. John Spicer. Right, right. That's that. And so, you know, I mean, that has been their whole strategy is that if you say it enough, if you lie enough, if you get loud enough, uh, the rest of the world will agree with you. Yeah. Man, it's Sean Spicer. What a joke that guy is. As soon as you mentioned him, that was a guy who was on uh, Dancing with the Stars. Remember that he was on Dancing with the Stars? And when the show, when when his segment began, he was like, this is an opportunity for, he's like Obama. This is an opportunity for Red America and Blue America to come together. And uh, I just think this, we can, 
connect countries that have been uh, all this needless strife. And then when he, he was an absolutely terrible dancer and he was getting low scores, he made a blatant. He's like, let's show, let's show the libs that we're together on the. Wait a minute, what is it? Is it all everybody kumbaya holding hands, or are you going to make a blatant MAGA appeal? <laughs> I think it worked. I think MAGA, all these MAGA people started voting for him because yeah, let's show them. Let's vote for this right, terrible exactly. dancer. Exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Del Marie, that's uh, about it. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, yeah, Ida's legacy, man. Great job you're doing. Well, thank uh, you. You know, and uh, really like some the fact of your listeners actually signed up to be subscribers, so I'm really happy about that. And I hope more will do that by going to the uh, website www.idaslegacy.com and go to the bottom of the page where it says subscriber and sign on so you can get more information about what it is we're doing and when the next uh luncheon is, yeah, uh, our next event, yes, next event, uh, yes. yeah. So very good. All right. Uh, Delmarie Cobb, veteran strategist, uh, political operative, political junkie, and dear friend of the show. Thanks for coming on, Delmarie. You're welcome. I also want to thank Producer Chris for doing an outstanding job. Hey, Producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Have a great weekend, everybody. And remember, you can catch previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and a whole lot more free content all at chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on all your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.